Hi and welcome to the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host Annabelle Collins. Over the last year this podcast has focused more often than not on the pressures within acute healthcare settings as the Covid pandemic has taken hold. But in recent weeks the demand on the mental health sector has intensified to the extent that there were no children's mental health inpatient beds available anywhere in the country at the end of March. The pressure on eating disorder services has been particularly acute, with Simon Stevens flagging the increased needs in these specialist services at an HSJ webinar earlier this week. So I'm joined by my colleague Rebecca Thomas, who covers the mental health sector for HSJ, and I'm delighted to welcome two guests to the podcast, Dr Agnes Ayton, Chair of the Faculty of Eating Disorders at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and Dr Ashish Kumar, who is Vice Chair of the Faculty and a Specialist in Children and Adolescent Mental Health Care. And I know that summarises just a slither of your professional work, but thank you both very much for joining us on the podcast this week. So I think... Thank you for welcoming us. No problem. And I think um, to start with, let's perhaps focus, let's focus on the pressures on eating disorder services and then we can broaden out a little bit as as the conversation um, flows. And I think it would be helpful to understand where we were before the pandemic hit in terms of capacity for adult eating disorder patients. Um, So, Agnes, perhaps we could um, start with you. What was the situation like um, before last spring? Well, thank you very much for um, including us in, in your podcast and, and raising awareness about eating disorders. Uh, so I think before I answer your question, it would be helpful to think about uh, uh, the bigger picture, what's happening in a population level. I mean, one of the uh, issues that have been raised by um, both the um, PHSO, the and and the recent prevention of death uh, report by the coroner is that we haven't got good uh, um, epidemiological studies of eating disorders in in the UK. And so the best information we have is um, is the health survey which was published uh, just December, uh, where they looked at uh, trends of eating disorders in in the adult population. So talking about adults over 16. And um, what they have found um, that there has been uh, almost threefold increase since 2007. Uh, so uh, in 2019, so that was before the pandemic, um, there was there were 16% of the population, adult population, was screened positive for eating disorders. And out of those, 4% reported that their feelings about food had interfered with their ability to work, meet personal responsibilities, or enjoy social life. So these are the, the people who are significantly impaired by their eating disorders. And um, if I did a bit of a quick calculation, that's about 2 million people in the country. Uh, so we're talking about a large number of people uh, suffering from clinically significant eating disorders. and. What the health survey also showed uh, that the increase uh, has been particularly significant for men and people who are middle-aged. Um, so, so the stereotype uh, which equates eating disorders to teenage girls who are underweight is clearly um, not true. Uh, what what it also showed 
uh, that the risk of eating disorder is highest among people who are obese or severely obese and people in lower social economic classes. Uh, so um, this is in contrast with NHS benchmarking data that only 11,000 people are um, actually receiving NHS uh, specialist care for adults. So, so it's more than 95% of the population not receiving any help. Uh, so that would that would um, kind of put things into context how much pressure the services have been on them. Uh, we we have had and, and maybe Ashish will want to talk about that. We have had investment into CAMS child and adolescent eating disorder services um, over the years over the last uh, five six years, and that has been tremendously helpful. But we haven't had. Um, are the same parity across the age range. Rebecca, do you want to come in there? Yeah, so I mean, um, speaking to that, um, obviously from a policy angle, there has been a tremendous focus in the last few years on children and young people's mental health, rightly. Um, uh, particularly with eating disorders, we haven't had that same uh, policy funding or um, focus, I think. Um, Agnes, and you can correct me if I'm wrong for it adults and so for example I'll take I'll take the um the targets that were um national targets they're far and few between for mental health as it is um but we have a couple for children and young people which are specifically focused on eating disorders there isn't the equivalent for adults do you think these kind of nationally mandated targets would be helpful um I, I think we probably um should uh, ask um, uh, Ashish's view because he's a frontline um, a clinician working with children and adolescents and eating disorders. So he has a direct experience. But what I would say uh, that um, having the investment and then having the uh, targets to, to check whether the investment is actually making a difference to um, people's treatment has been tremendously helpful. Uh, what has been difficult, I think, that maybe the, the need in the population has been underestimated. And I think um, that has been actually quite clear across the age range. So the number of referrals have been going up year by year. So I don't know, Ashish, do you want to mm, kind of yeah, come in there? And then I'll continue about adults maybe after that. Uh, thank you, Agnes. And, uh, and uh, Rebecca, it is an extremely important question, actually, and I will give you a picture on both sides of the uh, fence. So when I started my career in eating disorder world, I became the self-anointed, uh, you know, um, lead for eating disorder services in Alderhead Children's Hospital. And now you can imagine Alderhead Children's Hospital is one of the three biggest uh, children's tertiary care hospital in whole of Europe, not just UK. It is massive in Liverpool area, if you know it. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. So, so we had no pathway, no idea of how to treat eating disorder patients. So my job was to make it a coherent pathway to develop it, implement it. And we had no funding at that point. I'm talking about 2014, 2015 timeframe now. So I had to go to each child and adolescent mental health community team, which is not a specific to eating disorder make them agree to a pathway without any funding, without any money, hope that they are skilled up to 
save lives of eating disorder uh, patients, which are young people and you know children as well. It was a difficult ta task, but luckily um, the NSS England and Department of Health then decided to invest 150 million pounds over five years, meaning that 30 million pounds every year. And I was one of the lucky few who was, you know, um, off the block very fast, got it implemented, got it started in Liverpool. And uh, 2016, we started to, uh, you know, run the service, which was a standalone specialist eating disorder service. Before I moved to my current role in Northwest Borough NHS Trust, which is soon going to merge with Mercy Care NHS Trust, which is a big, big mental health care provider in Liverpool and surrounding area. So it meant massive difference because we could put a team together, which were full of, you know, um, nurse specialists, um, psychologists, therapists, dietitians, family therapists. So our model was based on, you know, a nice guideline. Um, which was old one, 2004 one, then another one came in 2017, which is the newest NICE guideline on eating disorders. And we started to provide NICE concurrent uh, therapy and treatment to our children and young people. Now we had a national access and waiting time directive, which was our blueprint, I must say, which told us that we must see a patient which is non-urgent, non-urgent means less severity of illness within four weeks and urgent cases within a week. So, and the target was to do it 100% of times by 2020. And uh, in each of the service, we were doing it extremely, extremely fast because there was a purpose, there was clarity of focus, and there was a pathway, and there were interested clinicians. And I was, you know, as a clinical lead, I was leading the team. So we could implement it very fast. We started to deliver it. It was not an easy task. We had massive attrition rate of uh, practitioners of therapists of family therapists etc purely because it is a very complex and difficult in a world and me and agnosis chair and vice chair have talked several times that people who want to work as professionals in eating disorder services and because this podcast would be targeted to managers and leaders in a mental health world and health world i will urge them to treat this area as you know priority area because it is very complex world you need to incentivize people who want to work in this area by whatever means, financial, career progression, free opportunity to train, bursaries. You know, like uh, we give, give NHS bursary for nurses to train, but you need to give some sort of incentive for people to train in eating disorder, which we and Agnes always talk about. We need to have credentialing for all the doctors to develop a specialism because we have no next generation of doctors and nurses who are willing to take up my role, Agnes's role. And many other senior um, consultant psychiatrists who are both adult and child psychiatry. We have we are staring at a vacuum which is massive. But having said that, from saving lives point of view, we have saved lots and lots of lives. I can tell you because of this national level of access and waiting time directive by seeing this patient very fast. So compared to before 2016, where patients had to wait and it was their sheer luck where they would be seen, who would be seeing them, whether they are specialists in eating disorder or not. Now there is a specialist area across the country, especially in England. There are 72 children's eating disorder services. And, and that has made massive difference. You know, the level of care has gone up. It is not perfect, I must say. And since um, we had 30 million pound every year, now it has gone to almost 52 million pound every year uh, because the government increased the funding in 2019 and 2020. So I had a bit of uh, you know, negotiation with our local commissioners to get that funding transferred to us, which which they did, because in COVID time we had around 40% surge in referral rate. Now, wow. 
that is just in COVID time. But I wanted to give you another picture. So our team was established to see 60 patients per year, 60 new referrals. Mm. But year by year, we were breaching that um, set targets of referrals by three times, four times. So last financial year, we had 260 referrals coming in. So, so you could imagine the massive pressure we are having on our services. And numbers until last year were not increasing in terms of people who could help these patients. And creating a waiting list of severely ill eating disorder patients with weight for height of 60%, 70%, 75% or BMI of 9%, 10%, uh, sorry, 9, 10 or 12 is like you are going to you know, kill someone by default if you are asking them to wait on the waiting time or your waiting list. So those patients need to be seen very fast. Mm. On a separate note, Rebecca, you asked whether there is a national guidance or blueprint for adult eating disorder service. I don't want to treat on Agnes's toe by all means. But in 2019, the NSS England and Department of Health published a blueprint of adult eating disorder services. They wanted to replicate what has happened in children's eating disorder world, but they didn't back it up with any funding. That is the sad story. Now, as you could imagine, when my patients who go on to transition age, when they reach 18 and 19 years of age, because my service goes to 19, there's no equivalent good quality service on the other side of the age gap, age border, you know. So these patients, many patients were quite unwell. Their BMI of 17, 16, 15. The adult eating services sometimes will say, we will not see these patients because they are not unwell enough to be seen by my team. They are not unwell enough to be admitted. Yeah. And Rebecca. Thank you. No, thank you. And I was just going to pick up on that point. Rebecca, you discussed that this week in an article for HSJ that um, some patients are deemed not to be unwell enough to, to warrant care. Is that right? Yeah, well, so I, Agnes can speak to this issue um, more than I, but um, uh, there are there are there are many areas um, that still use um, body mass index as a um, way to manage access as a threshold for access. Mm. Um, despite that being against both NICE guidance and NHS England's subsequent 2019 guidance, and Agnes, please come in here as to kind of why that happens and the impact on the patient um, and mm. service when that does happen. Yeah, I mean that's that's extremely distressing for everyone. Uh, so it's distressing, obviously, for the patients, for the families, and it's distressing for staff. Uh, and because we know there is uh, research evidence uh, to show that being on a waiting list for long uh, for long period of time actually causes harm. So that's why uh, access uh, to treatment uh, should be prompt, and and that's why. Um, those principles are enshrined in the NICE guidelines and um, the NHSC commissioning guidelines. But as Ashish said, um, unless there is funding, and simply the sheer numbers, um, um, the NHS services have to find some sort of a criteria. And I suppose the BMI will only tell you about the level of risk. Um, but but I mean, it's um, it's a terrible situation. We wouldn't have um, cancer services that would only see patients with level, well, grade three or grade four cancer. We wouldn't turn people away with, with early intervention. Um, I would say uh, uh, just uh, something about adult eating disorder services. So, 
So yes, there is um, a commitment to funding in the NHS long-term plan, but there isn't ring-fenced or funding, and there hasn't been any cost evaluation of how much investment is needed for implementing either the NICE guidelines or the NHSC commissioning guidance. And the NHSC commissioning guidance doesn't actually include a threshold for a waiting times for therapy. Um, and um, because we haven't got the same access and waiting time standards for adults, the data collection is not systematic and it's very poor. Uh, so there was one um, national audit about two years ago, but that wasn't even published. In contrast, the uh, child and adolescent within the other services are very closely monitored and published. So we know that since the pandemic, there has been a 50% increase in referrals for children and adolescents. Um, and um, we don't have exactly the same numbers uh, collected systematically for adults. Um, so we have kind of looked at um, our own um, area in the southeast, looking at uh, the number of people needing hospitalizations. And what we have seen that uh, there's been a 20% increase of people who need hospital admission. And um, when you're talking about people needing hospital admissions, uh, you're talking about people who are potentially a life-threatening stage, mm. uh, usually because of malnutrition or maybe other uh, issues like um, suicide risk. Mm. Um, and these people cannot wait for uh, two months for a bed uh, without actually increasing the risk. Um, and the number of admissions to acute hospitals has, have gone up so, so that um, is putting pressures on, on the acute system. And, and um, obviously it, um, it's not the same as providing specialist care for someone with a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so there is a lot of pressure and there is a lot of evidence of pressure in the system. And I suppose we are at the stage when we, we desperately need action and commitment. So the number of patients who they probably are in adult eating disorder services, they're probably three times as high as in, as in child and adolescent services. So we would need three times uh, the funding. Obviously, it wouldn't come immediately, but we would need to have the services built up uh, like the services have been built up in camps. And uh, we need a, need a long-term uh, strategy. We also need to develop the workforce um, because mm. unless we, we have um, people um, trained in eating disorders, then um, it causes major problems with recruitment and retention. So, so we have been kind of trying to work with the GMC and with the Royal College of Psychiatrists to improve training for uh, psychiatrists. But it's not just the psychiatrists, it's also um, general practitioners, um, emergency doctors, uh, psychiatric nurses, psychologists. So unless people are introduced to eating disorders during their undergraduate training, they, they will be frightened to come and work. Uh, the minute you provide them training, they're usually kind of very interested and enthusiastic, but unless we have funding, then there are no jobs to go to.
So, so you know, these things are really closely interlinked. Mm. Um, and and I suppose we also need capital funding. On the college has been talking about we need capital funding for mental health uh, facilities. Uh, yes, there has been funding for acute hospitals, but a lot of the mental health uh, buildings are insufficient, uh, and that reduces the capacity, um, particularly during the pandemic. So, and we also need um, research into better treatment, better therapies. Yep. Rebecca. Hey, I, was, I want to come into that, um, and I, um, I think it'd be interesting to issues to talk to you about this also and there is often this argument when you call for more beds within mental health services saying oh we need what well, the f- focus needs to be in community services um and i mean as i understand um as i understand it there isn't any ambitions to increase the mental health bed base um a lot of the funding's going into the community services which may well be right but what happens if you don't um, i mean it will take a while for community services to get um, where they need to be. So what happens in the interim to people that do need a bed? Um, yeah, so it is quite an important question, uh, Rebecca, and thanks for asking it, because in the last four years, the number of admissions in children's uh, eating disorder services has increased by fourfold, you know, and numbers are still daunting in adult eating disorder services too. It has almost increased fourfold that side too. And what it means is that because number of beds, especially eating disorder beds for children as well as adults have not increased at all, lots of these patients sometimes being under mental health act or in common parlance, they are called sectioned. <clears throat> so after being sectioned, because they are so severe and they're refusing treatment, that's why obviously they have been sectioned in the first place. And hence the risk end is quite high for them. Yeah still they are left on either medical wards or pediatric wards and i was discussing with agnes the other day that in last one year we had 96 admission to pediatric ward which is extremely extremely high just to pediatric ward and many times these patients have been left to wait on pediatric beds very unhelpfully many times because they have many other acute acutely medically unwell patients to treat but we have been managing these severely unwell children and adolescents on pediatric ward sometime for three months, four months before a bed is found. So so it is really, really, you know, unhelpful and uh, it causes lots of uh, problem with their recovery of our patients. Because as you know that if you are not able to provide very holistic care for these children and adolescents who are being treated for eating disorder, which can only be provided in tier four eating disorder services, which are especially services to treat these patients who are extremely unwell, because as a consultant psychiatrist, I would not want to transfer anyone to inpatient. I want to treat all the patients in the community, but when they are struggling to improve in the community, then only I decide to bring them in in pediatric ward because acuteness is very high or severity is very high. And when they do not improve, because I want to give them two, three weeks to turn it around, to start to refeed themselves, start to engage with nutritional plans or meat plans. But when they fail to do that, fail to improve there, then only I think of tier four beds or admission to tier four eating disorder services. And hence, it should not be taken lightly. No one wants to admit the patient if there is no need. It is not a convenient choice. It is a choice when everything has been exhausted. That has to be remembered. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Agnes, did you want to come in there? Yes, um, I mean, I, I think that there is that um, narrative that if we uh, invest into community uh, services, then um, we want need to increase uh, hospital beds, and I, uh, I think that 
whether that's true or not, I'm not sure. But even if it is true, it probably will be quite a long time scale, given the huge amount of unmet need. And and I think we wouldn't be having this conversation that you either have hospital treatment or community treatment for cancer. You you would say that you have a step care depending on the need and the severity. Mm. And and when we are talking about beds, I'm. I'm sort of thinking, you know, they're talking about numbers and the number is, you know, you have 20,000 admissions and 400 beds. So the numbers don't add up. But these are people's lives. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, the amount of suffering that people go through when they're at a stage when they have to wait for a specialist bed is, is, is really unspeakable. I mean, these people are quite often in a life-threatening situation. So, so we're not talking about mild cases, we're talking about uh, more severely ill patients who need bed. And, and uh, yes, early intervention is really important. And yes, early intervention prevents deterioration uh, in a significant proportion of the population, but not with everyone. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we need to have a, a step care approach and, and look at the whole care pathway and, and longer term. I think we were. I think we did. We did a story at the beginning of the pandemic, didn't we, Agnes, about those with the most severe needs not getting the help, um, and partially because uh, bed numbers were were limited during COVID because of infection prevention control. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that is bed numbers are still being limited because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the pandemic has worsened uh, a situation which uh, was already under huge amount of pressure, and and um, the reasons for that are kind of multifactorial. I mean, in in adults, um, people who deteriorated during the pandemic quite often would be quite reluctant to seek help on time, or if they did seek help, maybe the, they had a remote assessment, so maybe the risk was missed. Um, and so we had kind of patients uh, presenting in, in, in a life-threatening situation um, as a first, first presentation. And I'm hearing the same thing from my uh, CAMS colleagues as well, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I, I suppose it was an unexpected consequence of the pandemic. We, we weren't anticipating that, but that, that's what's been happening. And and it's it's not just in this country, but but internationally as well, there is the same pattern. Mm. And I wonder, I don't know, Rebecca, if you can help with this question, but um, what impact does it have on um, other kind of patient flow within a hospital, other kind of pressures if um, eating disorder patients are spending? I think it was um, Ashish that said, or maybe Agnes, but three or four months in a in a in a non-specialist bed I mean what what impact can that have on um, other parts of um, how the hospital's running? Well I guess it, it, within acute hospitals do you mean? Yeah yeah I think I remember in your article you, you, you talked about um, how CAMS patients were spending time on general acute medical wards and you know that obviously doesn't sound like that's not the right place at all but I'd just be interested to hear kind of what other impacts that can have. Well, I think Ashish and Agnes will have a better idea than myself. But I mean, obviously, that means there is one less one less paediatric acute bed. But also, I think I think more importantly for the staff, Mm. clinical staff working on that ward um, aren't necessarily trained to manage someone with 
uh, their well for example for their for their mental health condition they may be trained to manage manage their physical health condition but mm. these things need to be treated in parallel yeah Ashish did you want to come in there yeah, so I wanted to give you some flavor of that question, Annabelle, uh, particularly mm -hmm. that uh, as associate medical director in my NHS Trust, I have an overview of um, different specialties in, um, you know, psychiatry as well. Um, so including CAMS. Um, so lots of our pediatric um, beds, of, uh, which is attached to, which is in our general hospital, which is on the same site as my psychiatry side of um, clinics and inpatient clinics, uh, sorry, inpatient hospital beds are or wards are. So at a particular time, many times there are five or six CAMS patients, not just eating disorder patients, CAMS patients might be on pediatric ward. So sometime I will get a complaint from the clinical director for pediatrics department to say that you guys are virtually making my ward as a mental health ward. It is not even, a, it doesn't even look like a pediatric ward anymore. Mm -hmm. So, so that is to say something about you know the acuity of shortage of bed and many of those patients who are camps, who are you know mainline mental health um, like depression, psychosis, or behaviorally disordered um, patients who are on periodic ward are very high risk. So many of them would be at one time two or three of them two or three of them could be sectioned in a section two of mental health act. And those are the risks. And many of the, like uh, Rebecca, you have said that many of the pediatric ward um, nurses are not trained to deal with such acute risks. And they are not psychologically trained either. They are not psychologists or therapists. And hence they are unable to provide any therapeutic input to these young people. And that is the sad story here. Because many times these young people are, you know, stuck there for two months without having really uh, all important therapeutic input. So they might be just on medication, but spending nine to five without much education because there is no um, education facility on pediatric inpatient unit, which can be there on CAMS wards, which are purpose built to provide educational support to young people as well. So they miss out on their education for long periods of time, you know, and yeah. of course not getting suitable care. So, so these are quite important points where policymaker needs to think about that uh, expanding capacity in CAMS inpatient units and of course children's eating disorder units as well would be quite important to provide holistic care and like Agnes said do we differentiate between a cancer patient who needs inpatient or outpatient we trials them isn't it who needs inpatient we treat them inpatient who needs outpatient we treat them on an outpatient basis mm -hmm. and definitely our team does the same but uh, like we have been saying time after time, uh, we need a concerted effort to improve the clinical care, social care and mental health care for not only CAMS patients, but eating disorder patients as well. So mm -hmm. generating capacity uh, in by, by improving the funding, not only for children's eating disorder services, but adult eating disorder services is extremely important, number one. Number two, increasing funding for research in children's eating disorder services and adult eating disorder services is extremely important because current therapies and interventions are only able to be helpful in 50% or something around that cases. So we still need massive improvement in terms of wide ranging therapy or intervention which could be helpful, which could be evidence based, which we are lacking currently. Hence, chronicity is increasing. Hence, the outcome of patients with eating disorder is extremely poor even now as we speak. And it becomes even poorer because of lack of funding in particularly adult eating disorder side. 
We also need the creation of academic posts. At least 20 academic posts across the country would be quite important because they will be the, the starting point of more research, more training, more dissemination of knowledge among the health systems, social systems, education system. And then you will be attracting more people. So more fun funding mm -hmm. offer bursaries, opportunity to grow, opportunity to train in eating disorder is quite important. As Agnes mentioned, credentialing in eating disorder, which is pan age across the ages for all types of doctors. I'm not saying I will restrict it to psychiatrists only. We will say, come on, pediatrics, medical specialists, all get trained, become a specialist in eating disorder. No, it is important. We need to extend and, and then it will improve the quality of care we are providing to patients with eating disorder and that will reduce morbidity, complexity and death among eating disorder patients. And one final point I wanted to make for this particular question that there has been a global uh, study by Deloitte, which is a financial institution, as you might hear, um, in, in collaboration with the University of Harvard, which is called a striped study, and they have given us very high level of data on mortality of patients. In UK, there is no system to capture how many people have died with eating disorder. So that is wow. the like missing missing link. So you do not even know how many patients are dying, apart from those five, six cases which go to coroner's court, hog the limelight for right reasons. It is sad a story even then. So we have requested that establish a national register of eating disorder patients so that we know how many patients are there, how many are dying and how many are dying with eating disorder you know, and associated complications such as suicide, such as cardiovascular failure. And, uh, and the, by doing so, we will be able to make people understand the severity of the condition. When we extrapolate the data from a striper study to UK population, we have reached a figure of 1,850 1, deaths per year. That is the extrapolation from that study, wow. based on UK population and US population. You know, so we are talking about more than 1,800 uh, 1, deaths in UK because of eating disorder, but there is no recognition of that fact. Mm. No and way to measure it. Thank mm. you. No, thanks. And um, I think uh, just looking at the time, I think um, as promised, just broadening um, the conversation out a bit, um, Rebecca, maybe just, and I don't expect you to cover everything in just a few <laughs> minutes, but I just thought it would be interesting to kind of reflect on, um, well, what you've noticed in terms of other mental health services. Um, you, as I said in the intro, you've very recently written about pressure on general cam services and um, the lack of beds anywhere in the country, which was, um, I was um, completely bowled over reading that that news story from you in March. Um, what what just some thoughts on that perhaps before we close? It's interesting, isn't it? So that 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 headline about there being no beds left um, that came up a lot in terms of the acute services during the pandemic. That was often a, a shock bed, but it happened. It happened before the pandemic within mental health mm. services. Um, I mean, it might not have happened every week, but it did it did happen there would have been instances where there would have been no beds and particularly for ed and cams a big majority of the beds are in the private sector anyway mm, mm. um so uh, generally i guess if we broaden it out what i'm hearing around other services or take crisis services for example um i, I spoke to a, a source in um a source in the west midlands who have said it's I mean, it was really bad before the pandemic um, and people, although the numbers are similar to before the pandemic, people are more acutely unwell. 
Mm. And that's mm. within crisis services specifically. Mm. Uh, but uh, I, I'm sure Agnes and Ashish have heard, ha, have heard more from across their trust. Yes, Ashish, did you want, or Agnes, did you want to come in? Just, um, yeah, I just wanted to say um, yesterday I was in my trust performance meeting, which gives us the data of patients we are seeing or increase, etc. So the data says that in our trust, which covers a population of like uh, 650,000, and um, I mean, part of our trust, it covers actually more than a million, but uh, we recently divided. But even then, in last one year, and there has been increase of 72% referrals to CAM services last one year, which is pandemic year, 72%. Um, that is a huge jump. As a result, we have a massing waiting time before we see patients in CAMS. And, uh, and also, just to say that before pandemic happened, there was a year-on-year increase of 30 to 40% every year in CAMS referrals. That is well known. That is documented by NHS England and everything. Mm. But in our trust only, 72% increase from that baseline of 30 to 40% increase, as you could imagine. Mm. So that is a massive, huge increase in demand. And this is natural because everyone is very anxious. Everyone is getting depressed because they're not able to do what they need to do or want to do. Everyone is in like a lockdown situation. So just to give you some figure that what we are up to and what we are against when we are talking about the severity of the situation. Thank you. No, thank you. And Agnes, any final thoughts from you? Well, I just wanted to thank thank you again to raise awareness of uh, the the level of uh, risk in eating disorder services. And I I was looking recently did a Google search about um, uh, mortality um, uh, and eating disorders, and I had five million here. Okay. I so so. Obviously, we have plenty of evidence to, to say that there is a this is a high risk patient population. We have evidence that early treatment and intervention can save lives. So we need uh, need action and we need ring fenced uh, funding. We need commitment, a longer term strategy which looks at workforce, research, training, and also one final thing that I haven't mentioned is coordination of um, uh, obesity and eating disorder prevention strategies mm. uh, because we don't want inadvertently to harm people by by using the wrong messages so 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 all of these things really need to be kind of strategically um, put together and uh, as a faculty we are very keen to get involved in that work mm. Thank you so much. And I think, yeah, it's just really emphasised how it's um, m multiple different prongs to this approach and how I think often the narrative that um, lockdown has kind of caused this huge kind of crisis, but actually it was already incredibly under pressure. And I think that conversation today sort of really underpinned that. So thank you so much, both of you for joining me and to Rebecca, of course, as well. Um, we've come to the end of our time this week. And thank you to listeners. Um, you've been listening to the HSJ Health Check podcast. Just a reminder, we're available every week on the HSJ website and across all main podcast channels, now including Amazon Music and Audible. Don't forget to subscribe and do get in touch if there's something you'd like to see us talk about. We'll be back next week.